0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at TrinityReformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. We are nearing peak leaf season. We're within days of it. And I sure hope you will bother to get off Netflix and the internet and go have a gander and look at it. What glory! It's wonderful enough that God would continue a cycle of life over and over again, but then to adorn it with such glory and splendor? It's unbelievable. So if you're able to take a drive, better yet, take a hike if you can. Get out there and give glory to God for the things he has done. Would you turn to Acts chapter 6? That's our sermon text today, Acts chapter 6. We're working through the book of Acts. Today we're just going to cover the first seven verses of this chapter, and that's because Lucas Weeks didn't think that the 60 verses afforded him in chapter 7 was quite enough for him. He needed more. He needed some of my passage, too. He, actually, it does make sense it, that starting at verse 8 of chapter 6 to the end of chapter 7 is one narrative arc, and he's going to cover that for us, which is the account of Stephen who were introduced to in these verses here in 6. What we focus on here today is the calling of and appointing of the seven servants of the church, which are what become known as the, the office of deacon as the scriptures unfold, as New Testament history um, goes down the road a bit, this, this what happens here in these early verses of Chapter six become the office of deacon, and so while this is, that's a very significant thing in the flow and development of the history of the church, it really is. These verses are just primarily a setup, an introduction to a very important man named Stephen, who God is going to send. Uh, he's going to he's going to preach. He's going to declare the truth with such boldness and clarity that it's going to get him killed. And God is going to take that to introduce a time of persecution, the floodgates of all the resentment and the rage of the Jewish leaders opens up and pours out on the church. And God uses that to drive the Christians out of Jerusalem and to push the gospel out into the heathen lands, into the Gentile lands more and more. You remember that in Acts chapter 1, that's what... Jesus said would happen. He didn't say it would come through persecution, but he said they would start in Jerusalem. That they would go out from there to the ends of the earth. And this is one of the interesting things that God used to bring that about. Still, this is a very significant account. What happens here in its own right in the church, and it's fitting that we would be taking a look at this here and now because in just a couple of weeks we're going to have an opportunity to, uh, if the Lord leads us to do so, to to appoint a new deacon for the Church of Jesus Christ. That's an opportunity before us here in a couple of weeks at a congregational meeting. And we want to know a little bit more about what that is, where it comes from. Everyone loves a good origin story, and this is the origin of that. Let's read it together. Acts chapter 6, this is God's word and it is eternally true. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for giving us your word. As we peer into it, and as I try to open it up and explain it and and declare its truths, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister here among us and that he would speak through my words and use my words and bless this preaching to give to us all greater insight, wisdom, understanding, both of you, of your, and of ourselves, and of your church, this great body on earth, which you have graciously made us a part of. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been a part of a church that grew? Or maybe a church that had a sudden burst of growth. Growth is really exciting. It is a good thing. There's nothing inherently good about smallness in the kingdom of God. It is something that is designed ultimately, maybe not in every circumstance, in every town, and every time and place, but ultimately, on the, on the whole, to grow and expand and expand and expand. That's the way God designed it. And it's super exciting to all believers, when, when we see it happening. I remember when I was little and I attended Eudora Baptist Church out in southwest Missouri in the country, and the sound booth was up in the second story of the, of the in, in, in another room, and there was like a sliding glass window that the sound man opened up. Um, mostly he had to listen through headphones to get any sense of what was happening in the room. But one of his jobs was to do a head count and post the number on all these cards. They were like hand lettered cards of various numbers that he could then compile the the count for the day and he could post them in the window there. I I assume for the pastor, for whoever was interested to know what the count for the day was. And even as a little boy, I remember being excited whenever the count was big and kind of deflated when the count was less on a given day. There's just something inherently exciting about growth and the church prospering and growing and more people showing up. You remember once in a while we have a joint service with everybody together? That's more better and more exciting. We all feel it. It's just true. Thus far in the book of Acts we've seen a dramatically growing, rapidly growing church. God is adding to the church day by day those who are being saved and it's a lot of people. started out in chapter 1 with just 120 people huddled together in a room praying Then the spirits poured out, Peter preaches, and the response to that preaching is 3,000 souls are added that day to the church. By chapter 4, the count has increased to just the men alone, number 5,000. And then in chapter 5, we see this statement of Luke. Multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. So if just a conservative estimate, if you assume marriage of all those 5,000 men and one child, we're in excess of 15,000 people. This is a large movement. Very exciting thing to be a part of. Wouldn't that be amazing? There's nothing more delightful, says Calvin, than a growing church and to see the church prosper numerically. But growth brings its own challenges, and that's one of the things we see happening here is this, there is an inherent challenge that this rapidly expanding church has to face, something that it, that, it, that it reveals, an administrative challenge, pastoral challenges that come to the surface. They don't call them growing pains for nothing. Growth usually brings some measure of pain, discomfort, and difficulty. Some of you remember fondly when this church was small. Who was here? Raise your hand. Who was here when the church met on the east side of town? You have me beat. I wasn't even here. I came whenever we were at the school across the road here. That was my first encounter with y'all. You remember, we've grown since then quite a bit. Remember how it has taken changes and adjustments and there's been difficulties in making those adjustments. They've not all been easy. Actually, few of the, of the big changes have been easy to make. One of the big changes early on in my understanding is that we went from having an evening Sunday, a Sunday evening service to having home fellowship groups that met in its place, which is like taking one big small group and breaking it up into a bunch of little ones so that there could be room to grow for people to actually have a real meaningful connection and fellowship in the church. That was a big change. Other changes we made were changes to our worship style, the service. None of those things were easy. Most of the changes that we made as I re- as I understand them were changes made anticipating growth or opening up avenues for growth. The changes that the apostles are make here are changes that are just of necessity in response to dramatic growth. What was the problem that, that, this, that was inherent or that came to the surface in this time of dramatic growth? It says in verse 1, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. A complaint arose. Complaint Uh, Another other other words for it, scriptural words, are grumbling, murmuring. You think of the children of Israel murmuring against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Why did you lead us out here when they go a day or an hour or a meal without food? And they wonder what's going to come of us, and they murmur. The Greek word is gagousmas, which is sort of an otomatopoeia sort of word, gagousmas. There's this murmuring grumbling that comes. We've heard a lot about the incredible unity of the church in the book of Acts up to this point. Incredible, sweet fellowship and unity and sharing of things, a oneness of mind and spirit. Here are the first inklings of division that we've come across in the church. And it won't be the last division. Certainly not in Scripture, but not in history either. The history of the church is a history of division separation of grumbling and dividing because of it what was this complaint about well a complaint arose it says in verse 1 on the part of the hellenistic jews against the native hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food so who were these hellenists and these native hebrews they're all of the disciples at this time up to this time are jews there may be some former Gentiles among them, that's called a proselyte, but under Judaism you could convert to the people of God. You could come, leave your people and your, your God, their gods behind, come and join yourself with the people of God and be counted a true Jew. So there were among them some former Gentiles who, had been con- who are now considered real Jews among the people of God by conversion. That's how it worked from the earliest times of Judaism, this was true. So all, but all of them at this time were Jews, and those tended to fall into two camps, the Hellenists and the native Hebrews. The Hellenists were primarily Greek-speaking Jews from the diaspora, those who had been spread ac- over the known earth. There have been a couple of times in history where God spread his people out across the earth, usually by way of discipline. Some of them went search- seeking their fortune um, who were merchants and seeking to, to do trade and engage in trade in foreign lands. So there were Jews who were all over the known world and the rest of the world was a Greek world at this time. And so they had, they had taken on the Greek language had, and had uh, taken on a lot of Greek culture and characteristics and traits and that was that group of Jews. Then there were the native Hebrews who were the people who were Palestinian Jews. Who spoke primarily Aramaic and had their way of life shaped by their time and place there in Palestine. And uh, were, they were the larger group, almost certainly. The Hellenists at this time were probably in the minority. But this group of, um, that you can imagine that they had their challenges in getting along together and meshing these things. They had all, many of, there were many converts from both of these p- groups that had joined themselves to the people of God, had believed in Jesus, and were now making a go of it together, meshing their cultures and their backgrounds together. They had previously worshipped in probably separate synagogues, speaking either Greek or Aramaic, and now here they are, living together, working together, fellowshipping together. And this is the first time that we see difficulty arise from it. They were obviously widows in needing care, from both groups. Caring for widows has always been something near and dear to God's heart. He says of himself, of his own care for them in or M- Moses speaking of God in Deuteronomy 10:18 says, "He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing." That's God. He executes justice for them. And he that's his heart and he expects his people to share his heart. Widows and orphans in need were near and dear to him, and he expected it to be near and dear to his people. Caring for widows was a true test in the Old Testament, and then it continued into the New Testament of true, vital, living, active faith, true religion. Undefiled before God, says James, is this to care for the widow and the orphan in his distress. So it's really near to the heart of God. He expects it to be near to the heart of his people. And the church, this New Testament church, takes up this mantle of God's own concern and is showing that concern for the widows among them. People are bringing, you remember, people are bringing gifts, large gifts to the apostles' feet saying here, this is for the good of all. A lot of that likely went to the support and maintenance of widows who were in need and didn't have a way of earning their own keep and needed assistance and help. This has always been the glory of the church, to care for those in need. It is, it is a beautiful thing and a privilege that the church gets to do this. But it wasn't going well. There was favoritism maybe, certainly some measure of neglect, or at least perceived neglect, of the widows that belonged to the Hellenists they were being overlooked or they were feeling overlooked one way or another, it was resulting in a crisis, a problem, a problem that wasn't going to go away. And the response of the Hellenists was what? To grumble. To grumble against the Hebrews. The Hebrews were perceived as the ones who were withholding the necessary care for the widows of the Hellenists and so they began to do what you and I do when we (laughs) encounter frustrations and challenges and hurt feelings, we grumble. Now, is grumbling and complaining ever biblically justifiable? All parents here know the answer is no, it is not. We spend endless words and hours trying to teach our children another way. A better way, a mature way, a godly way to address problems, to, to redress grievances, to deal with hurt feelings and frustrations and difficulties in relationship. He took my toy. I punched him. <laughs> we just, it's just like so many hours, moms and dads. Well, it, we don't get much better, do we? We get more sophisticated in our grumbling, but we still in our flesh is this desire to grumble. And it's never the way of Jesus. It's never the proper response. But it's so easy. The hard thing to do is to exercise patience, humility, to engage conflict with love, with looking in the eye, to not avoid con- it's we are so conflict averse it is vulnerable it is hard very difficult work to engage one another in the places of our frustration and our hurt feelings anybody with me on that <laughs> that is really difficult work some of the most difficult work that is what god calls us to in fact grumbling is forbidden it is forbidden James 5 9 says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another. Do not complain against one another. How much complaining do we do? So much, endless complaining against one another. Clear command of Scripture. Jesus reiterates it or says it before this almost the same words in John 6. Do not grumble against one another. Are you a grumbler? Are you a complainer? That is not a godly, mature response. It's not a Christian response. And it is a very dangerous and toxic response. It ultimately leads to division. It is like it is a non solution (laughs) to a problem. It can only go bad and sour. It can't can't bring people together. It can't restore relationship. It is just like, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home and I'm going to be over here and I'm going to be embittered against you. I'm going to grumble and complain. Well, this is what was starting to happen. It had come all the way to the apostles. And it ultimately was, in a real sense, a complaint against the apostles. They were the ones receiving the money. Doubtless, they were feeling... Responsible for what was for the distribution of food, maybe they had some, some they had de- delegated some of the responsibilities, but it's still them that's look they're looked to officially as the ones who are responsible to solve this problem. It comes to them, they are all native Hebrews, every last one of them, and so there's also a vulnerability that I'm sure that they feel. You can understand, there's Hellenists who have their widows, they feel they're being overlooked, maybe they really are being overlooked, and then here's the majority group, and the apostles are all of the majority. And this is a very difficult situation, potentially very explosive, and they have to find a wise way forward, and they show that they've got it in them they have a they are real leaders they exercise real leadership it's pretty amazing what they do i think it's instructive first of all to consider what they do not do they do not get defensive i think that's pretty remarkable this is a significant challenge to i mean this is an affront to their ability to manage the church this is a challenge to their ability to manage the church. This is a complaint against them. They do not get defensive. Now, maybe they did for a moment, but they don't show that to the people. This is not their response. They do not feel sorry for themselves and grumble back. Oh, Lord, these people that you've given us, they're just impossible. They're too numerous. They have too many problems. They don't, they don't go there. These are places that you and I go. I hope you recognize that constantly. You know, we feel sorry for ourselves. Don't they know I've, spent, I've been up to midnight every night this week? My wife has hardly seen me. Don't they know how hard I work? These are not the places the apostles go. They do not blow it off and sweep it under the rug. That would be a tempting to do, wouldn't it? Maybe if I ignore the problem, it'll just go away. The turtle approach. They do not divide the church. That's one potential solution, right? We'll have hel- the Hellenist church. We'll have the native Hebrew speaking church of Jerusalem. They don't divide the church into first and second Jerusalem church. They do not close down the compassion ministry of the church because it's no longer sustainable. So they rightly say, they, 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 say, to the, they say to the people, this, this is not fitting for us to manage anymore. But they do not conclude, therefore, it's unimportant and must be shut down because it's not sustainable. They don't do any of these things. These would be very tempting solutions, non solutions ultimately, non godly solutions to the problem. What do they do? Well, they lead, they really lead. God puts leaders into leadership to lead. And they show that they have leadership. They have vision. They're creative. They come up with a solution that in the end makes pleases everyone and really solves the issue. We don't hear about it again for quite some time, not until the Judaizing controversy that erupts later. Here's what they did. Verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 2. So the twelve summon the congregation of the disciples. This is the first thing they do. They don't go off into a secret conclave, work it all out, and then announce to the church how it's going to be. They don't do that. They call everybody together, and they make some proposals, but they are bringing everybody along, and they're working with the congregation to solve the congregation's problem. Very wise. Very wise. Not every issue can be solved that way or should be solved that way. But in light of these circumstances, this is a very wise way for the apostles to work. And this is is one of the things we learn here, and we have tried to over the centuries in our own church and our own bylaws, try to reflect this kind of relationship between the officers of the church and the congregation, that we have a working with one another approach. There's things that the officers decide and do, freedom and responsibility and authority that we have, that you have granted us, and there are things that we have tried to protect, your responsibility and right to speak to in an appropriate way that reflects, this is where it comes from. This is where Presbyterianism comes from. This point, and also Acts chapter 15, where we have this relationship mutual relationship and working together on the part of the appointed leaders and the congregation. I have heard of, know of people in churches that are working to reclaim elder, plur, the plurality of the eldership, elder-led churches, that do not do this. In their, in their eagerness to reclaim elder leadership, what they do is the elders make all the decisions and simply inform the congregation of the way it's going to be. And that is not a biblical model. This is beautiful, open-handed, real authority. They're accepting responsibility and taking leadership. They're not, they're not saying, guys, this is your problem. Deal with it. They're really proposing real solutions. They give all the criteria. They give the exact number of the, pe- of the officers that they think is appropriate and wise. But then they say to the people, now you choose these men. I think that's incredible an incredible example of wise leadership, open handed leadership, real leadership, but also working to bring other people along. So they call a congregational meeting. Verse 2 The twelve summoned the congregation and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Not desirable means it's not fitting. It's not pleasing to us. It's not pleasing to the Lord for us to do this. We have a charge. We have a responsibility and a duty to fulfill. We cannot do that, that thing that God, that we absolutely must do. And this other aspect of service and ministry in the church, even though it's vital, they're not diminishing its importance, but they are acknowledging the fact That they cannot fulfill the duty that God has given them, the charge, the great commission, to go and declare the gospel to the ends of the earth and also wait on tables. This is not them being above waiting on tables. This is simply acknowledging the truth. They cannot be faithful to the Lord in their calling and do this anymore. That's where they start. It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God. It will come, if we continue in this, it will come at the cost, the neglect of the word of God. Can the church survive without the word of God? This is the lifeblood. The diaconal compassion ministries of the church are essential as well. But they are downstream from the word of God. It is the word of God that quickens them, that instructs them, that directs them, that motivates them. And the word of God, the, 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 the spring from which the life of the church flows is, is in danger of being shut off. And whatever diaconal ministry that r- would remain as a result would soon dry up or be corrupted. It requires the, the lifeblood of the word of God to be declared. There's a problem here, brethren. Something must be done. We, I'm afraid, are not the solution. That's what they're saying. God has given us a specific calling that we cannot neglect, the service of the word. So here's what we propose. Verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Isn't that interesting, the interplay of responsibility? You choose, and we will put them in charge. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They propose a division of labor. And this is a division, well, the, the division is the service of the word and the service of the table, which is the, meeting the practical, physical needs of the people of God. And this is a division of labor that persists and continues down to our day and is active in our church, that we practice here in our church, and that is alive and well in the office of elder, which is an office of spiritual leadership and rule in the church, and of teaching, and, all, and then on the, on the other hand, the office of deacon, from which this springs. This is not a strict division of labor. We see this immediately because Stephen goes and starts preaching and then Philip starts evangelizing. Some of these men have themselves extraordinary gifts and power with the word of God. And they're free to exercise them. Because they're made deacons does not mean they have to put those things in a box and keep them under wraps because they're not authorized. Everyone is authorized to speak the Word of God to the best of your ability in accordance with your gifts. There is no restriction on that in the Word of God. Everyone is authorized to declare the, the Word of God. It's not just my job, it's not just Peter's job, it's not just the people who seem particularly gifted's job. Everyone has a giftedness. To declare the truth. We're, and even an obligation. We're to speak the truth to one another in love. All of us are under the weight and obligation of the Great Commission to go into the world and preach the gospel. Some of us have that formal obligation by way of calling an office, and we are to be set aside for that work and to focus on it. But all of us together share in that obligation. So some of these men have great gifts and talents for this work. Stevens is an incredible apologist, defender of the faith and a teacher. Philip is an evangelist who goes and witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch. We're going to hear about their 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 stories, we'll hear about their gifts being exercised in here in just a little bit. If you are a deacon and you have those gifts, would you please use them? We're not restricting you. The word of God doesn't restrict you from that. This is an issue of priority and focus. And there needed to be somebody focused over here and somebody focused over here, somebody responsible over here and somebody responsible over here because it was too much for one person in themselves to be responsible for. That was not gonna work. It wasn't tenable. What type of men should these table servants, as they're called B. what what type of men should they be well stepping back from the qualifications which we'll get to in a minute just the 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 significance of the con- of the qualifications themselves shows how significant this office is this is not like low-level entry-level minimum wage table service This is not something just anybody can do, any 15-year-old. Walmart's got the signs out. We hire 15-year-olds. Have you guys seen the signs? They're hurting for people. This is is high-level service and responsibility. The qualifications themselves highlight this fact. What are they? They must be men of good reputation, the kind of man that you would trust your money to who can be responsible, who has maintained a good reputation, who people in the community respect, look up to for leadership. That's what he needs. He needs that qualification. And he needs to be full of the spirit and wisdom. In a community that is spirit-filled, these men need to stand above the rest as, as extraordinarily gifted, filled with God's spirit, and particularly a spirit of wisdom because they have some heavy lifting to do. The office of deacon, and Ben, I'm looking at you, and immediately I just, I, every time I've looked at a deacon this morning, my, I, I'm just, I, I know something of your work. I've heard about it. I've heard about it from you. It requires incredible wisdom. Cause in, and and it, it can't be finally separated from spiritual work either. Because the minute you get into somebody's life and try to help them practically, you're in the thick of it with their spiritual needs as well. And just practicalities and trying to help them understand how they can improve their situation. It takes incredible wisdom and giftedness and strength and power from the Holy Spirit. Real wisdom to discern people's needs and how to truly help them. Because it is the glory of the church to help people in need. But not everybody who claims need has the, is, is equivalent to everybody else. And often what some people need is to be helped to stand more on their own two legs. And that takes some difficult work, some difficult conversations. These are men have to have some real fortitude and strength, something special about them. Diaconal service is a high office and calling. Please do not diminish it. The men who hold this office, do not think lightly of it. Do not wish, man, if only I could be up there with the other guys. This is important, significant, weighty work that you do. God bless you for it, those of you who do who carry this responsibility of seeing to the practical needs of the people of the church. God bless you for it. This is weighty stuff. Consider how God honors that role of service. In 1 Timothy 3.13, Paul writes, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Those who serve well obtain for themselves high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus. So don't diminish the importance of this office. It's weighty stuff. These guys are not the help. It's an office of authority, responsibility, and gifts need to be commensurate with the weight of the role. Well, the apostles made it the congregation's business to choose the men, Uh, We don't know how they went about it. We're not given that information, but they put it on them. Maybe there were nominations, maybe there were votes. We don't know. But somehow they came up with their candidates and they presented them to the apostles who would then formally seat them in office. Everyone liked the apostles' proposal. They liked what they heard. This sounds good. It pleased the whole group. It says in verse five, the statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. So there's one of those former Gentiles. The first one, I think, that's been mentioned by name in the book of Acts and kind of a little, Luke is sort of getting these sort of movement in there towards the Gentiles little by little, subtle ways. Here was a former Gentile who became a Jew, who's chosen among these first deacons. Now, these men all have Greek names, and I think that's noteworthy. This is not something we can be dogmatic about, what I'm about to say, because people have, it was not uncommon for native Hebrews to have Greek names. But all of these men, I think it's pretty conspicuous that all of these men are listed here with Greek names. Now, here's what I like to think about it. Can't prove it, but here's what I like to think is going on. I'd like to think that the congregation itself, led by the majority, chose men from the minority. I think that that was so beautiful. I'd like to think that that's true. I hope it is true. It would go a long way to solving the problem, wouldn't it? If there's doubts, if there's real, real overlooking of widows in need on the part of the minority, or on the part of the majority towards the minority, well, here's a real solution: the all seven of the men will be from your camp. We'll submit to that. That'll make things fair, unobjectionable. So it makes it, there's a lot of logic and sense to it. But it's also, if it's true, it's also full of love and charity, and magnanimity towards the minority on the part of the majority. It would be very beautiful. Well, somehow or other, the congregation selects its men. Verse 6. And these they brought before the apostles, those men. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. This is the first ordination service in the history of the church. They prayed and laid their hands on them and set them apart for their office and role. I've been thinking, we have, Lord willing, if the Lord leads us to appoint a new deacon... The congregational meeting will have, subsequent to that, uh, an ordination service for that man. And I've been thinking a lot about the laying on of hands and what it means. Traditionally, we've had a way of doing it. And the way we do it is we get the man up here and we have him kneel and we lay hands on him and we pray. And we pray that God would fill him with all of the gifts he needs and all the help he needs to fulfill his office. But I heard recently Tim Wegener had his son, Peter, be ordained as a deacon in a Reformed church up north, and he was surprised by the way they did it. He had never seen this before, and I've come, started thinking about it, what he told me, because of what this passage says. We'll get to it in a minute. But what he experienced there in that ordination service was that they prayed, and then they laid hands on the man And said, "Take upon yourself the authority to fulfill your office." (laughs) Isn't that amazing? So it's a symbol of imparting of authority, not just a symbol of special prayer, especially blessed prayer. Not that that would be wrong in itself, but the way they practiced it was that this is, this is, we're standing as the church and representatives of the church in Christ's stead and we are declaring to you, we are imparting to you the authority in the name of Jesus Christ to fulfill your high office in his church. And the reason I th- I'm coming back to it and finding that compelling is because it says here, after praying, they laid their hands on them. And you have to come up with some reason why, that, why they would do that. They would pray, and then they would lay their hands on them. I wonder if this practice that Tim Wegner experienced with his son isn't more biblical than what we've done. I haven't, I haven't cleared any of that with any of the authorities or powers that be here, so we'll see what, if anything ever comes of it. Stay tuned. Okay, lastly, what's the outcome of all this? Well, we get another of Luke's frequent summary statements here in verse 7, the kinds of things that he places between episodes to keep fixed in our minds the real message and story of the book of Acts. Do you guys remember what that message is from the introductory sermon? I know that was a number of weeks ago. What is the real story of the book of Acts? It is the progress and triumph, the unstoppableness of of the word of God. Not any man... Not any of his gifts, it is the word of God itself. And Luke keeps bringing this to our attention with these little summary statements that he throws in. He says in verse seven, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. So this division of labor proposal that the apostles make is a real solution. It really works. The conflict is resolved. That's what Luke is communicating to us. It's not coming back. Conflict is resolved. And the word of God goes along, happily making its progress more and more. The the apostles are freed up to do their work, and it's powerful. And look, this is the first time we've seen this come in, in the second half of verse 7. A great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's interesting. My understanding is that the priests, had, how, did you like, how would you like this um, rotation of service? Even, even you once a month, um, what, what, uh, National Guard folks, Army Reserves folks would find this enviable. Two weeks on, 50 weeks off. That's my understanding of the terms of service for the, the priests in the temple. That's because they had their own livelihood. They had their own little farm, their animals, their family to care for. They were given freedom by God. There was enough of them to go around. And, but they had their two weeks of service. They'd come up. That means quite a turnover of priests are coming through the temple. And you remember that the, the, the Christians in this previous chapter are meeting there regularly in Solomon's portico, you're pre- lots of priests are hearing the gospel. And they know the gospel is Jesus fulfills all the types and shadows and the prophecies of the Old Testament, which they know very well because they perform them on a daily basis. or That's their, that's their whole job when they come up for their terms of service. That's their job. They're to know this stuff. They're to know the meaning of it. And there's a harvest of priests Now, probably not from the high priest's family because the high priest is dead set against the way of Jesus. Murderous threats, hatred for Jesus and his disciples. But these lower level priests are hearing the message and believing and it's beautiful to think of. Here's just a couple of lessons from this story or this account. Number one, we need men who would be willing to serve us as deacons. The Church of Jesus Christ depends on this work. This is is vital. Caring for the poor and the destitute and the needy is vital work. This is the heart of true religion. We need people who will keep that heart beating faithfully among us. This is a very important work. Men who are deacons we need you, we're counting on you. We need you to do this work well for us. Young boys, if you're listening, we need you to be growing in wisdom and in spiritual understanding so that in God's time, some of you can be called and appointed to this work for us. This is vital for the church. It's also vital because it frees up other people to give, devote themselves to the word of God and to its ministry among us. Which everything depends upon. Men and women of means, that's pretty much all of us. We need to be giving resources to these men faithfully so that they have a purse from which to spend from. They're appointed to oversee and lead us in this work, to make some of the difficult decisions and judgments for us so that we don't all have to be trying to have congregational meetings every week about every issue. They're appointed to this work. We need to give them the resources. It would be wonderful if they had more resources than they could divest. That would be such an joy and encouragement to them. So let's keep them encouraged in their work. Encourage a deacon today. Go up to a deacon and say, God bless you. Thank you, brother, for your service. Don't be discouraged in it. It's good work. Quote First Timothy to them. Second lesson is that the priority of our ministry ultimately is God's word. That's the, that is the tip of the spear. And we need to make sure that th- there are men in our church that are, pre- that are freed up to do that work. And I believe that you are doing that well. But let's not forget that that is the primary that is the power behind all that we do. If we lose the word of God, the priority being and the focus being on the ministry of the word of God, we're going to lose it all. It's of utmost importance. Don't forget that it's God's word that grows the church. This is clear from this passage. If you look at verse 6 or sorry, verse seven, the word of God kept on spreading. The focus is not on any agent, preacher, it is on the word of God itself. That's where Luke puts the emphasis. The word of God is powerful. This, should be, this knowledge should be freeing to you and me. That means it is itself powerful. It doesn't depend on your eloquence, although God can use that. It doesn't depend on how much You hesitated in the conversation, or how many times after the fact that you think, Oh, I didn't say this, or I said that wrongly. God's word is powerful. We need to trust it more and put it out there. Give it to people. Just give them the word of God. Believe in it. God promises that it will go out and it will always accomplish the work which He has appointed for it to fulfill. It will not return void to Him. God's word grows the church. Let's have faith. To speak the word of God with boldness. Lastly, one of the clear lessons from this passage from an institutional, on an institutional level is, we need to be flexible. We need to be flexible as a church. I talked about how we, in the past, have made tough decisions to, in order to grow. Sometimes you have to make tough decisions because of growth, to adjust for growth. A church has to be flexible. The apostles were. Some of us fear change. Change is difficult. I understand that. I will confess to being the kind of person who loves change. Could we meet in the middle? I don't have anything to propose at the moment. I'm just saying that if God blesses us with growth, there will of necessity be change that has to happen in response. And in some cases, in order to grow, we have to identify places where we must change to anticipate it or to allow for it to happen. Let's be flexible. That's a clear application of this text. The apostles didn't have deacons in mind <laughs> until the problem occurred, and then they showed that they, that they, had, to have, they had to think on fast. They had to be you know on their toes. They had to be fast and on their feet and come up with solutions. This is a real solution, and God blessed his church with it. We as an institution, I'm not proposing that we institute new offices in the church like the apostles did. They had that authority. We don't, but let's be flexible. If God Blesses, us with, blesses your testimony and witness with growth and with fruit. Lord willing, we'll have all kinds of problems that we have to adjust for. Wouldn't that be great and encouraging? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and the example of these great wise men who you appointed as apostles over her at the beginning. And Lord, we ask that you would Bless us with men who would lead us in compassion and wisdom and be full of your Spirit, who would be zealous for the care of the poor. Would you give us such men? Would you encourage, Lord, our current deacons? Help them not to grow weary in well-doing. Thank you, Lord, for giving us these men and for their service. And I pray that you would keep them unified as a body. Give them great joy in their work as they see you working through them. It can be discouraging at times. Lord, would you uphold them in all seasons? And would you give them a sense of confidence in Christ Jesus because of their work? Bless them, Father, and continue to bless us with such men. In Christ's name we pray, amen.